Second Corinthians chapter one, verses twenty three through chapter two, verse four. But I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not be pained by those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Four years ago, the church expressed its sense of priorities like this. We exist as a church to enjoy God in worship, to minister to each other in nurture, and to evangelize in missions or to reach out to unbelievers in evangelism and missions. And nothing has changed in terms of those three priorities. We still have those three basic goals as a church, but Now we're talking in terms that are slightly different. Now we like to say, Bethlehem is a vision of God. And we exist for three purposes. To savor the vision in worship. To instill the vision in nurture. And to spread the vision in evangelism and world missions. And the reason for the new terminology is, on the one hand, simply to reassert that the philosophy of ministry is alive and well at Bethlehem. We still use these criteria to measure our successes and weigh priorities. And secondly, it's valuable because these words that I've just used draw more closely attention to the centrality of God, not only in our vertical act of worship, but in the horizontal acts of nurture and evangelism. God is at the center not only when we savor him, but also he is at the center when we are building a vision of him into each other through nurture and when we are spreading a vision of him in evangelism and missions. Now, last week, we focused on priority number one. We exist as a church First and foremost, to savor God. I took uh, Abraham, my seven-year-old, out to eat last night at Burger King with our free Whopper Junior coupon and all-you-can-drink for 69 cents. And said to him, once we were positioned with our Dr. Pepper's, Now, I'm going to review last Sunday's sermon, Abraham. It had three points. This church that we are part of exists for three reasons. Do you remember any of them? Mm, He didn't remember any of them. So, well, let me tell you what they are. And come and talk about them again tomorrow. Number one, uh, we exist to savor God and to instill God and to spread God. 
Now, do you know what savor means? No. You know what instill means? No. You know what spread means? Yes. So I realized I've got a communication problem, with the kids anyway, uh, on Sunday morning. So here was my illustration. Now, wake up, kids. Guide, this is for you and all you adults who don't know what savor means. I took my Dr. Pepper. I said, now watch this. This is savoring. I put the straw in my mouth. I went. That's good, Dr. Pepper. That's savoring. Enjoying and tasting something. Got it, Abraham? Got it. I said, you know what instill means. You know what instill something into somebody? Come on. You know what this means. Tell me what instill means. And lo and behold, he didn't know what it meant. But he, he said what was the best possible thing he could have said and the word I should have thought of to use. Because I was looking for all S's, see, right? So I was looking for savor and something and spread. And I settled for instill because I thought study was too academic. He said, does it mean strengthen the vision? I said, that's it. That's it. That's what I should have used. Strengthen the vision. So I'm going to use strengthen the vision now this morning and instill because instill, for all you people who don't know what instill means, instill means to drop into or pour into. And strengthen means it's already there. That's why strengthen is probably better because instill sounds like something you do to an unbeliever that's an empty pot, no vision, no God, and you're going to instill, pour it into them. And that's not what I mean. I'm talking about believers when I talk about instill And so strengthen is a helpful qualification. The vision is there, but it needs to be deepened. It needs to be clarified. It needs to be enlarged. So that's where we are this morning. Priority number two at Bethlehem is that we exist as a church to help each other see God more clearly, more deeply, more largely than we ever had before. And I call that nurture. Now, the reason I use the word nurture is because it's got a family ring to it. Nurture is used in the King James Bible one time. You know where? Most of you know where. Ephesians 6, 4. Bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's a family word. It has that ring to it. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says breeding, Training, educating comes from the same Latin root as nurse, nurture. So what I mean then is that our priority number two is that we are to engage in all kinds of horizontal activities that by means of this nurturing, caring, breeding, educating, build into people strengthen in people, instill in people a bigger, deeper, clearer vision of God. Things like teaching, conversing, visiting, working together, playing together, studying, encouraging, counseling, admonishing, rebuking. Anything that we do towards other believers ought to be done with this Number one goal, 
I am going to, by my demeanor, by my attitude, by my tone, by my facial expression, by what comes out of my mouth, clarify, deepen, and enlarge this person's vision of God. That's why we exist for each other. To let it happen for each other. Now, the text I want to put underneath this priority is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Let me give you a word of background. The Apostle Paul had intended to go to Corinth. And he changed his mind. And he got into no end of trouble with his opponents because of his mind change. You all know, don't you, that if you've got enemies, people who don't like you at work or in your extended family or in the church, that you can't do anything right. You try to say something, twist. You try to do something, twist. You can't do anything right if they don't like you. Almost anything can be turned against you. Well, Paul knew that. He had enemies at Corinth. And let me show you by reading verses 16 and 17 with you what they were saying. You just listen on the other end of the telephone as Paul talks to see what they were saying in Corinth. Here's what he says in verse 16. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. And have you sent me on my way to Judea? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Accusation number one. Do I make my plans like a worldly man? Accusation number two. Am I ready to say yes and no at once? Accusation number three. You can hear him. He's a vacillator. He speaks out both sides of his mouth. Look at there. He said he was going to be here in December and he just waits in, in Ephesus. He can't be counted on. He's duplicitous. And so they went after him over this little thing. A change in travel plans. I mean, don't you feel for a leader like that who just can't do anything to please his opponents? Now... What is the reason why he didn't come? He gives us his own understanding of things in verse 23. And notice how he begins with this solemn oath. Can you imagine taking an oath to correct your travel plans? I mean, this is serious business. It's so strange that such a little thing would be elevated to such an importance. He says, I call God to witness against me. In other words, let me be slain by the Almighty if what I say now isn't true. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Now, what does that mean? It means that Paul knew something was wrong in Corinth. And if he had arrived there, there would have been sparks. There would have been trouble and pain, as he calls it, in the next four verses of chapter 2. And he didn't want the pain. He didn't want another painful visit, another conflict. And so what did he do? He changed his plans. He wrote them a letter. He prayed for them. He planned to come later. And he said, Lord, turn that situation around so that when I go, I won't have to go with a rod. As he says in 1 Corinthians 4.21, I can go with meekness and love. Now, Paul is has got a kind of holy paranoia about this church. I hope... I hope I'm not dishonoring him in saying that. A holy paranoia. That is, he is, every time he writes a sentence, he's listening with other people's ears as to how this is going to be heard by his enemies and opponents in Corinth. And he writes the word 
The reason I didn't come was to spare you. And he can hear what they're going to do with that sentence. Spare. Oh, listen to him. Spare us. Who does he think he is? He's always lording it over your faith. Spare. As though he's always got this rod that he can withhold it and then show that you're beholden to him. Or he can use it on you. What kind of an apostle is that? He, he, he heard him. And so what does he write in the next verse? You can almost hear him sighing that he has to write things like this. Not that we lord it over your faith. That's not what I meant when I said spare. We work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Now here's the verse I want us to dwell on for the remainder of our time. Verse 24. Because in it Paul gives his goal in his horizontal relationships with fellow believers. And his goal is a model for us, isn't it? I don't see anything in this verse that would suggest only apostles have this goal and only first century people have this goal. This is a goal that can be lifted out, taken into my heart and yours with no difficulty or abuse of Scripture, whatever. What is his goal? He says, not to lord it over the faith of other people, but to work with them. For their joy. So what does he mean? He means my goal is not to exalt myself, not to call attention to my authority, not to serve my own reputation. My goal is to come in alongside you shoulder to shoulder and be a servant of your happiness. It's a beautiful picture that the apostle has of his relationship with the Christians. Now, you may ask, this is what you should be asking right now if you're tracking with me. You should be asking, wait, no, now, what does that have to do with the second priority? Because you said the second priority of Bethlehem is to uh, instill into people or to strengthen in people a vision of God. Where's that here? I don't see that in, in verse 24. If this is your main text, I'm missing the point. Let me lead you to where I'm coming from by asking this question. What is the relationship between faith and joy in verse 24? The verse begins with the issue of faith. It shifts to the issue of joy. It returns to the issue of faith. Let me translate it literally like this. We do not lord it over your faith, but we are fellow workers with your joy. For by faith you stand. Now, let's consider the relationships between the first two statements. We do not lord it over your faith. We are fellow workers for your joy. Here's my question when I read that. What is the contrast? What is being contrasted in those two statements? And the answer, I think you'd all agree, is what is being contrasted is lording it over And working together. That's the issue. Either you're puffing yourself up and lording it over someone's faith, or you are a fellow laborer shoulder to shoulder with those people. The contrast in these two causes is not between faith and joy. So that when you read it, putting the contrast where it belongs, it sounds as if joy and faith are almost interchangeable. Listen. It is not that we lord it over your faith, but we're fellow workers with you for your 
And then you expect him to say faith again. And he says joy. Why? My conclusion is because the joy that he's talking about is the joy of faith. They are almost interchangeable. They are inseparable. It's what he calls in Philippians 1.25, the joy of faith. Or what he means when he says in Romans 15.13 that they might uh, rejoice in believing. Now, let's try to confirm whether or not this is a proper understanding of this word joy by looking at the relationship between the second and third statements in verse 24. We are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Now, the emphatic position in the Greek is given to the word faith, not stand. And so the English versions that flip them around and make this sound like what he's really stressing here is the security of their stand is not correct. He is stressing that when they stand securely, it's by faith. It's faith that he's stressing. So you read it like this for its true connotation. He is saying, We are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. And whenever I read something like that, I always stop and say, wait a minute, Paul, you lost me. I didn't get the logic. Because we ought to be looking for the logic in the connections between sentences and clauses. I am a fellow worker with you for your joy, for by faith you stand. Now, what does that mean? What's the connection between those two statements? And I pondered and pondered yesterday trying to figure out, now what, how does this work? And here's what I would suggest. Let's start at the end. When he says, by faith you stand. He's saying faith is incredibly essential. It is so important. It is the one thing by which you stand as a Christian in grace. Therefore, you always turn a for into a therefore when you're reading the other direction. And I know some of your versions only have and, but I think you would agree probably that the connection is one of for. Therefore, I work with you for your... And then he calls it joy, but the logic of the verse collapses unless it's the joy of faith. And if I just translate it joy of faith, there's no problem at all. Everybody can see it. So let me do that from beginning to end. We do not lord it over your faith. We work with you for your joy of faith. For by faith you stand. And then it all comes clear that the overwhelming important thing in the Christian life is faith. But Paul never conceives of faith apart from joy. And he wants them to see that they're not notches on his gospel gun. He cares about them and therefore joy becomes the keynote at the middle of this Verse. Paul's goal then is to advance their joy of faith. And that is what our goal should be. Now let's go back to my question again because we're still not there. What's that got to do with priority number two? Priority number two is. Build into each other, strengthen for each other, instill in each other a vision of God. But now I've brought you to the point at least where I hope you can see 
that all joy that is spiritual, lasting, and God-honoring is the fruit of faith. It comes from faith. And therefore, if you want to seek somebody's joy, you must seek to strengthen and deepen and enlarge their faith. But I just ask you now, faith in what? And the simplest answer is God. And there's the connection with priority number two. I've just started with priority number two at the root rather than the fruit. Priority number two is to build into each other a bigger, clearer, deeper vision of the God who is to be trusted that we might have joy unspeakable and full of glory. So our goal at Bethlehem ought to be joy for each other. And beneath that, it ought to be faith in God for each other. And beneath that, we must, we must, as Abraham said, strengthen our vision of such a God who can be trusted. So as I conclude my part this morning, I commend to you this. Would you pray earnestly? And seek earnestly for relationships in the body of Christ where that can happen. Where you can be used of God to build a vision of God into others. And they can be used to build a vision of God into you. I have a friend in Wheaton, Illinois. John Armstrong is a pastor of a conference church there. And I just want to lift him out and present him as an illustration of someone with whom I have developed over recent years a warm, deep sense of camaraderie that has brought me more strength and more joy than I had before I knew him. He's a great comrade in arms. We're on the telephone every other week or so back and forth to Wheaton. And I was on the phone with him last week and we were sharing together about the ministry and about what we were preaching on and strengthening each other's hands in the Lord. And he told me about his sermon a week ago, which, is, which was on Nicodemus. And he said, I went at it in a new way, John. I, I focused on the availability of Christ late at night to this man. And in preparation for this message and thinking about that kind of availability and relationships in the body of Christ, I went to Paul's letters and I went to the ends of those letters and I counted one, two, three, four, all the names of the people that Paul wanted greeted. Remember those places? Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. He said, John, did you know there are over a hundred names at the ends of Paul's letters? And then with deep feeling in his voice, for our relationship and for his church, he said Paul was no loner, was he? He loved people. He cherished relationships. And so I urge you, ask this question. Could it be that this year at Bethlehem, the 2020 vision of home cell groups at Bethlehem could be God's means by which you find yourself in relationship with a small group of others who can strengthen your vision of God, deepen your grasp of faith, 
and lead you to a joy unspeakable and full of glory.